You're listening to Once, episode 255, fifth season DVD and Blu-ray review. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Hunter Hathaway. I'm Jacqueline. And we have watched and rewatched the fun extras that came with the Once Upon a Time complete fifth season on DVD and Blu-ray. So we want to share with you some of our thoughts and review and some interesting little tidbits that we've discovered along the way with the commentaries, deleted scenes, bloopers, all of that. And if you'd like to order your own copy of the complete fifth season on DVD or Blu-ray, then go to oncepodcast.com slash season five. That's a special internationalized link, so it should take you to the proper Amazon store for your country in case you're in Canada or the United Kingdom or somewhere else, and you can order the DVD or the Blu-ray through that link. And when you do, it helps support the podcast as well. That link is also in the show notes for this episode at oncepodcast.com slash 255. Now, if you want to watch our unboxing to see what this looks like, go to oncepodcast.com slash S5 unboxing. That's the letter S, number five, unboxing. And that's the video that Jeremy and I did when we first received the Blu-ray set to be able to unbox it, show you what's inside, some of the cool things and imagery and talk about it as it relates to the other cases. Now, the fifth season... Overall, how did you feel, Hunter and Jacqueline, about the amount of content that we get with the fifth season? I thought it was a lot. Really? I thought it was actually significantly less because we only had three commentaries and normally we have at least five. Yeah. Oh, see, I was thinking more of like all the deleted scenes. I'm not a huge one for commentaries. I like watching all the deleted scenes and the little extras and stuff like that. Yeah, no, the deleted scenes, they did have more deleted scenes in this season than in, can't say for sure if it's been all of the past seasons, but certainly I believe season four had fewer deleted scenes. And I felt like the deleted scenes for this season were more meaningful deleted scenes. Like you got more good content in them than just, yeah, here's a scene we deleted, so we're throwing it out there so you can see what we deleted. Right. It is meaningful, but at the same time, it doesn't mean anything because they're no longer canon. Yeah. For those who missed it, Adam did tweet out that all the deleted scenes, not just season five, but seasons one through four are no longer considered canon. So it's nice to see those, but like we can't factor it into any kind of analysis. And if it helped the timeline or anything, it no longer matters. Which is a bummer because there's some really good stuff in the deleted scenes. There is. I mean, a lot of it are these nice character moments where you kind of get to see the characters just talk one-on-one. That's always really nice. Or there are those occasions where, you know, we have pointed out some sort of discrepancy in the timeline or in canon, and suddenly it's like, oh, but this deleted scene actually answers all of that. But now we can't take it into consideration. Right. Because everything's out the window, and they can do whatever they want now. Now, we received the Blu-ray edition of this that has uh, an exclusive bonus. One of those bonuses is a couple more deleted scenes. And it also says that one of the episodes of the audio commentary is a bonus to the Blu-ray version. But 
I, I, I feel like that would really be robbing the DVD purchasers because there are only three to begin with on the Blu-ray. So if DVD has only two, then that's that's really being shortchanged. Um, however, also the sticker on the outside of the case says Blu-ray exclusive bonus plus free inside one of the little collectible postcards. I don't believe those postcards are exclusive to the Blu-ray. I think they're just an extra bonus that you could get with either the DVD or the Blu-ray. But they are neat. There's greetings from the Underworld, greetings from Camelot, and greetings from Storybrooke postcards. So now you have to keep buying them till you can collect all three. <laughs> right. Or watch eBay or Amazon. <laughs> I'm sure someone will probably be selling them. Now, speaking of selling things and collectible things that you might want to get, I want to tell you that right now, when you're hearing this, if you listen to it immediately after we've published this episode, August 18th through Sunday, August 21st, there is a special sale going on on t-shirts. These are fan-made t-shirts for Once Upon a Time. If you go to oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts, you can check out our hand-selected t-shirt designs that we think you would really like and that would show your fandom. And they're on sale, a special sale only during these four days. They do these sales every now and then, but you can find t-shirts that have little cartoon drawings of some of your favorite characters from Once Upon a Time. Uh, There are t-shirts with icons that have the different things that are symbolic to particular characters. You could get the Sheriff Department, Storybook Sheriff Department logo on a t-shirt. Uh, there are all kinds of fun things. Of course, Captain Hook is on a t-shirt and uh, the Seven Dwarves are on t-shirts. All kinds of fun things that you as a oncer, I think you've got to get these kinds of things. Uh, like one of the t-shirts, in fact, says, it's a oncer thing. You won't understand. <laughs> There are also uh, fun designs that are a little bit more based on the Disney idea of some of the fairy tale characters, but quotations from Once Upon a Time, like Magic Always Comes with a Price, dearie. Uh, There's a logo for Storybrooke Dark Ones. There are a lot of things uh, for Captain Swan shippers, but also plenty of stuff for Evil Queen, Rum Bell, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. One of my favorite t-shirts here is... I just want to watch once upon a time and ignore all my adult problems. (laughs) Or if you really like all of the ships, there is a t-shirt that encapsulates the major ships. It has on it Captain Swan, Snowing, Outlaw Queen, and Rum Bell. So check those out at oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts. Those are always available but they're on a special sale through August 21st, 2016 at oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts. And when you purchase through that link, that does help support the podcast too. Oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts. Let's start our discussion with uh, the commentaries for these episodes. Because of scheduling conflicts, Aaron wasn't able to join us for this episode tonight. And also Jeremy was sick, so that's why he's not here. But Aaron and I did get a chance to watch and record our commentary on The Dark Swan, which is episode 501. The commentary is from Adam Horowitz, Eddie Kitsis, and Jennifer Morrison. We pre-recorded that, so I'm going to share that with you right now. So Aaron, what did you think of the commentary for The Dark Swan overall? I really liked this commentary. I love um, I love whenever Adam and Eddie are commentating. I really enjoy kind of their perspective of things. And then I always love the perspective of bringing an actor in with them because they kind of get to play off each other just as somebody who's in the episode 
physically there while it's being filmed versus, you know, the people in the writer's room that are kind of making the decisions about it. Oh, yeah. I totally agree on that. There's a big dynamic difference between those commentaries that are only the writers or the producers and those commentaries that include the cast. What I like about it is what you get from the cast is what you can't necessarily get from the writers and producers. From the cast, you hear from them the experience behind what we're seeing on the screen and their thinking that often went into things and how they decided to act a particular thing or some of their favorite moments. And it brings a bit more personality to the people that we see on the screen because we don't really see Kitsis Horowitz and all of the other writers and producers on screen on a regular basis, but we do see the cast. And so to hear from them gives it, I think, a more personal third dimension. Yeah. And I really enjoyed hearing from Jennifer Morrison specifically for this episode. That was a very appropriate choice. And like you said, like she got to talk about, you know, her acting style and how she creates these different personas of herself as Emma Swan, as the dark one, and kind of her method of becoming the dark one just in her own acting and how that works. And she's such a talented actress. And we do get to hear stuff like this from her um, and from the others just about kind of her style of acting. But I really enjoyed hearing that and hearing how she pieces it in timeline wise. And it just kind of shows how talented she is to be able to kind of do that and play these different roles all in one episode. This is the commentary you should listen to if you want to know more about that whole Emma becoming the dark one and some of the thought that went into that and the challenges they faced and the the talent that was brought out from Jennifer Morrison, who plays Emma. Now, let's get into some of our finer details on what stood out to us about this commentary. And this is somewhat chronological, but we may be all over the place with our commentary on the commentary. We're that kind of meta. Hey, I'm the guy who runs a podcast about podcasting. I'm familiar with meta things. <laughs> But McKenna Grace is the little girl who played young Emma at the beginning of the episode Dark Swan. And a really crazy connection here was that Jennifer Morrison, who plays Emma, and McKenna Grace, who played young Emma, both of them acted in the upcoming sequel to a horror movie. And that movie coming out in 2017 is Amityville, The Awakening. And Jennifer Morrison mentioned that when she met McKenna Grace... She had said something about, oh, you could play a younger version of me. And that was before Once Upon a Time. And here, McKenna Grace plays a younger version of Jennifer Morrison. Perfect connection. Yeah, that was a cute little uh, like information nugget that they left us that we probably wouldn't have connected. Most of the kid actors that they seem to hire in Once Upon a Time are Canadian. And like the ones that are are just kind of in an episode or two. And I think it's just like labor laws about filming in Canada say that you have to audition a certain number of Canadian people for roles. But um, she's American and I'm wondering if it's just because of how much they look alike that they were like, okay, we got to get this kid. I did watch the trailer for Amityville and it seems terrifying also. <laughs> <laughs> when she shared that information on the um, commentary, I watched the the trailer just to see. If they acted together, which it didn't seem like they maybe acted together, but they did appear together. When we see that young Emma, she's in that theater watching The Sword in the Stone. And Jennifer Morrison said that that was one of her favorite movies growing up. (laughs) 
I know she's talked about in interviews before how she had a very Disney family. So it doesn't really surprise me. But I don't even think I've seen that movie. I had a very Disney family too, but my Disney family was a bit more strict on movies that had a little bit darker magic in it. So Sword in the Stone was actually one of those movies that I didn't see fully until the last couple years when Jenny and I watched it together. I bought it when we found out that Excalibur was going to be a thing in this season, but I just didn't get around to watching it yet. So I still haven't seen it. And speaking of Excalibur, one of the tidbits that came out in the commentary from Eddie Kitsis was he said, we always love the idea that two things would fit together and be broken. It kind of sounds like this Excalibur and dagger idea being connected or the dagger being part of something bigger was always sort of an idea somewhere in the back of their minds, but was not necessarily there from the beginning to say, yeah, the dagger is part of Excalibur. It makes a lot of sense that it would have been an idea. I can't remember the first time they foreshadowed Excalibur in this series, but I think it was a while before we actually got this amount of Camelot that they had actually foreshadowed Excalibur. Do you recall? Excalibur was mentioned in a previous episode when David had made a fake Excalibur to try and convince Snow that she was the rightful ruler of the kingdom. And that's when Rumpel said, nope, if that was the real Excalibur, I wouldn't be able to do this. And then he just poofed it away or destroyed it. Oh, right. Well, and maybe that was foreshadowing in more ways than one, because if that was the real Excalibur, it would somehow be connected to his dagger. I believe there was some other reference to Excalibur at some point, like a side reference uh, that they referred to the sword in the stone or Excalibur or something. But this season was certainly uh, more focused on Excalibur. For sure. Now, the man who played King Arthur, Liam Garrigan, was originally someone that they wanted to use as Captain Hook's brother, but he wasn't available at that time. So they were then able to get him for King Arthur. And I think that he fits the King Arthur part a lot more. And it was really funny to hear what they were saying about how all of the other cast kind of like had a kind of crush on Liam Garrigan. (laughs) I liked when they were summing up the scene at the very end where all the Camelonians come in and they say he wore the armor well and they were saying that they were like look at Jennifer's face she's just thinking I'll make you a mixed tape (laughs) Uh, I talked about that yesterday because people of the next generation probably don't even know what a mixed tape is anymore but that was a cute little reference to how nice and manly and how good they all looked in the armor when they all rode in on their horses and Everybody's face was kind of just like, oh, it's Excalibur, it's, or it's Camelot. Mm-hmm. Now, Emma's being the dark one was discussed a whole lot in this episode and the, the struggles that she faced as an actress becoming the dark one and also as well as some of the joy in that. And they said that Emma becoming the dark one was planned for, quote, a long time, unquote, But then they say things that seem to pin it toward more like just the beginning of season four is when they're thinking about Emma being the dark one, or at least that's when they approach Jennifer Morrison about becoming the dark one. Yeah, they said that it's been foreshadowed a lot, just the whole idea of Emma kind of fighting the darkness. But they did say season four, and then I think they kind of 
almost Jennifer maybe even retracted that and said, oh, I think it was earlier or somebody, somebody did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they did talk about it and they talked about, you know, the, even the uh, wardrobe plans and how long those took and the design of the costume. And it was a really interesting discussion. And apparently Jennifer Morrison collaborated a lot with Eduardo Castro on the Dark One costume, which is very interesting. He always makes such beautiful pieces, but it makes sense that if it's something she's going to be spending a lot of time in, that she's kind of working with him on that. Mm. And they referred to Emma as kind of like they created a new Disney princess. And with her becoming the Dark Swan, it was like they created a new Disney villain as well. Yeah, and that's kind of the only time that that's really happened in this series. They've they've had a lot of villains that aren't necessarily straight from Disney, but they are villains that we know and they have a different spin on them. Like I would say the Dark One is their villain, but him being Rumpelstiltskin is kind of the spin. But this is the first time I think they've really come up with a 100% original <laughs> princess and villain. And speaking of Rumpelstiltskin, Bobby Carlyle, who plays Rumpelstiltskin, and Jennifer Morrison work together a lot because of all of those interactions between Emma and the dark one in her mind. And Jennifer said that she really enjoyed getting to work that much with Bobby Carlyle. And he's a fun guy. And they did some great work together in that acting and the pairing and all of that journey. I enjoy any kind of one-on-one scene with Bobby Carlyle. He just seems to have great chemistry with every single actor. And the one-on-one scenes are always just the banter is always the best. And the other thing I found interesting just about that whole journey she went on was, I never thought of this, but apparently whenever they're aiming a, a bow at somebody, it's a CGI arrow, which makes a lot of sense. But I've never really thought about that. Like, oh, that could be dangerous. Yeah, once they said that... I now see it totally. I can see all of the little flaws or maybe not even necessarily flaws, but perfections that make it obvious that the arrow is computer generated. And uh, I'm going to see that now everywhere. I'll always be looking. Is that bow and arrow real or is that fake? I definitely started like watching the arrows instead of the rest of the scene as soon as they kind of drew our attention to that. They did talk a little bit about Amy Manson becoming Merida in this, but there's that whole extra on the season five Blu-ray and DVDs all about Merida. But they did bring out some interesting notes here about her playing the part of Merida in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, they said uh, that Pixar was very uh, willing to kind of talk to them about it and share things. And they did certainly pick a perfect actress for that. And they mentioned how... Not only did she look the part, but her personality fit the part as well. That kind of fiery personality. Yeah, she was perfect for this role. I I really enjoyed her as Merida. I love that movie Brave. I enjoy the new type of Disney woman that, that Disney has started to create with all of the newer kind of movies. So Brave was one of the first ones that I actually had, you know, this kind of kick butt, strong strong-willed <laughs> female character. And then, you know, they always bring it back to the themes of Disney, of like love and family and and all of that. But I really enjoyed that they brought her into Once Upon a Time and cast such a perfect person for her. 
Now, I know you didn't quite agree with something that they said in regards to Merida and Emma's relationship with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've, you know, watched the season through and through, but they were saying that they loved how Merida was the only person to never really forgive Emma, that everyone else is kind of just like, okay, let's go to Granny's and, you know, we'll have hot cocoa with cinnamon, but that Merida maybe never kind of gave her trust back to Emma. And I just, I didn't interpret that when we were watching live or even during this commentary. Um, There was not any kind of acting or anything that made me kind of think, oh, she still doesn't trust her at all. Like she seemed to really be genuine and... Mm -hmm in wanting her to succeed and to fight the darkness and in her forgiveness and acceptance of the apology. So I just found that interesting that that that's, was their take versus what we're seeing and interpreting as the audience. I think when you look at the storyline, that could make sense because in The Enchanted Forest and in Camelot, Emma's interaction with Merida was always negative and Merida was seeing Dark One coming out and all of that. And then back in Storybrooke, when Emma brought Merida to try and turn Rumpelstiltskin brave, Emma was controlling Merida, ripped out her heart, all of this stuff. So I could see every interaction that Merida has had with Emma has been negative. So it's difficult to just suddenly be, oh, yeah, we're buddy, buddy. I I understand all of that. It was a mistake. It was all a problem. I could understand that looking at the overall storyline. But I agree with you. That's not necessarily how it felt watching the individual episodes. Yeah, it just seemed like she was on board with everybody else. Like, let's help Emma and or I'm just going to go my own way and you guys do your thing. They talked a little bit about what the darkness and being the dark one does to a person and how they tried to bring that out in Jennifer Morrison's portrayal of Emma becoming the dark one. And they said the darkness and being the dark one is like a magnifying glass that reveals who you really are. And they say that's the way it's been with all of the characters, even with Hook, because they mentioned that with Hook, it brought out his vengeful side because he was very much driven by his thirst for revenge. And that's what the darkness brought out in him. And they also said the darkness kind of provides some freedom In a way, many times before, we've talked about darkness being like drugs or like alcohol to the point of drunkenness and how with alcohol, a a drunkard does not change who they are. Their drunkenness brings out what's already in them. The same thing with if we're just in horrible situations, relationships, complications, when we're driven to stressful extremes... It doesn't really change who we are, but it reveals what's already been in us and perhaps gives a particular kind of freedom for some of that nastiness that's already been in us to come out. And that's what the darkness is like here. Yeah, I really enjoyed that discussion. Like I kind of, I think we could have an entire philosophy and religion class kind of on this topic, but I found it really interesting. I've just completed yoga teacher training and I had to finish. We had about 50 hours of philosophy class and it went into all of, you know, the ancient kind of yoga philosophy. And a lot of it was about how, like, there's this idea that that people really only want to acknowledge their light and they really want to suppress their shadow and that we can't really come to like a place of peace unless we acknowledge that there is both darkness and light in us and that we need to see both of those things before we can effectively take our place and kind of 
encompass the light, like make sure that the light is what we are living for until we can actually acknowledge that there's also darkness. And I would say even with Christian kind of philosophy and background and religion, that that would be true as well. If if you look at that kind of um, background, I think you would be able to speak more to that than I can. But it's just, I find it really interesting that they do tend to bring in these really philosophical, deep kind of discussion points with this show, which I think is one of the reasons why we can podcast about it and do a two-hour episode about a 45-minute TV show. I love how they always swirl around this, the darkness and the light and that whole notion. It was a great sort of mini discussion that they had there. And speaking of swirling around, the weather in Vancouver, where they film most of the outdoor stuff with Once Upon a Time, is often completely unpredictable and it changes frequently. And Jennifer Morrison said something interesting. She said, the more miserable it is, the more beautiful it looks. That's very true of Vancouver and that area. I was there for a month last year. That's when I got to see them film and it rained every single day. But my pictures from that month are still beautiful and stunning. And it just brings out the color and the vibrance of the, of the nature that surrounds that city and that whole area. And they also mentioned that Camelot, the castle of Camelot, was filmed in Alberta. Yeah, I was wondering if they were meaning that they actually filmed there or if they just kind of did a shot and then CGI'd the castle. Like, I, I wonder if they meant that the actors went there to film that part or if it was just, you know, they needed a really pretty mountain to put this big fake castle on. They shared an interesting tidbit about cutting someone's hand off. This was the episode where Zelina was in the prison underneath the hospital and Hook comes to try and let her out so that they can take everyone to wherever Emma is. But that's when Zelina cut her hand off in order to get that cuff off of her. So then she could use magic to put her hand back on. Well, they shared that they originally wanted Hook to cut his hand off back in the episode 404, The Apprentice, when Hook went to Stiltskin and got his hand back because he wanted to be able to embrace Emma with both hands. And because of the struggles that came out in that episode where Hook thought that the hand was influencing his dark side and all of that misunderstanding, they had originally planned for Hook to cut his hand off because of that struggle. But ABC thought that that was too gruesome for that episode. And I guess their approach to that was a bit too gruesome. But now they've been allowed to do it with Zelina. I guess because of the way that they did it, that's what made it more acceptable this time, as opposed to last time it was Hook's solution to a problem. Whereas this time it was Zelina cut it off and put it right back on. And it's not necessarily as gruesome, I guess. Yeah, and I remember the first time I watched that scene with Selena, and I just like it really, really emphasized her crazy, which is what they really needed to do at that time. So, like crazy, but smart. That was such a smart thing to do. And yeah, I didn't find it overly gruesome. And I get that it's a family show. So maybe, maybe the way they had pitched it earlier was a little too harsh for eight o'clock on a Sunday night. Yeah. What'd you think about how they talked about? Emma and Regina's relationship in this episode. I love that they've acknowledged how far that relationship has come. They basically said in the pilot, Regina was trying to get Emma to leave town. And now here, here Emma is giving Regina this like control over her. And um, Jennifer Morrison made a really good point that like in her real life, she has a lot of girlfriends that she would literally 
trust with her life, but that that's not often reflected in TV and that often women are adversaries and they stay adversaries and that it's really nice to see women like kind of go from enemy into friends. Well, like frenemy for a while. And then I would say now it's like a genuine friendship. It's true. Like I, I kind of reflected on the shows that I watch and even though there have been some like really amazing, powerful moments between female friendships, it's it's often that they end up backstabbing each other and it just doesn't always portray women in a positive light. So I, I do get what they're doing and I do really like it. And Kitsis and Horowitz pointed out in the commentary that Emma is really the one who brought all of these people together and helped start these friendships and is kind of the glue that keeps them together, as you could see at the beginning of season five, where Emma's gone, and then everyone kind of starts to fall apart, very contrasted with the beginning of season three, when they go to Neverland, and Emma is like, we need a pirate, we need the the queen, we need the hero, we all need to work together, and she brought them together like that. Yeah, she has definitely been the glue that's kind of held everyone together, and Also, just kind of related to that, like they described her as the pop of color, which they meant very like kind of physically, but it's also true, you know, that's the same thing. She's kind of the one that brings kind of the color into the darkness and brings all of that. They were talking about how Jennifer Morrison wants to wear black sometimes and Emma always has to be the one that wears color. And that's been since the pilot when the yellow bug was the first thing rolling into the dark, dreary town of Storybrooke. And um that's very symbolic of what and who Emma is as the savior, as the light kind of coming into this situation. And she has definitely acted as somebody that's pulling and keeping everybody together in various ways and various types of relationships. But Henry a little bit too, I would say they didn't give Henry the credit, I think, for starting that process with wanting Emma to get there and to kind of fix everything. But mm-hmm. And Emma is the brainer of happy endings, which in their commentary, they said a happy ending isn't necessarily the end. It's kind of just a step along the journey. Well, thank you, Erin, for joining me for this portion of our podcast and being able to pre-record this with me. No problem. Thanks for having me. You can follow Erin on Twitter at Erin J. Cruz, and that's Cruz with a Z at the end. Let's move on to episode 508, Birth. Yes. This one was commentaried by David H. Goodman, Jerome Schwartz, and Colin O'Donohue. It was actually really fun. So we learned a lot. I don't know if you guys watched this one. Yeah, this one was actually already released several months ago. If you sign up for the season pass on iTunes, and there are some other ways that you can sometimes get this too, they did release this episode's commentary way back then, which I feel was cool, but yet kind of diminishes the value of buying the disc set a little bit. But that aside, it was some fun commentary. Yeah, I thought they just kind of threw in lots of little things throughout the whole commentary that are like, makes you think. There was a snow globe detector in one of the scenes. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, so they walk into, I believe it's Gold Shop, and there's a snow globe sitting there. And it's supposed to detect when the dark one comes in. And well, before we knew he was evil and he was a dark one, it started going off when Hook walks in. 
Yeah, and this was something that they'd written in, and they had to cut some of this stuff out, but they were describing this in the deleted scene. And it's one of those kinds of things like Sixth Sense, if you've watched Sixth Sense, where the clues are dropped here and there to tell you Hook is the dark one. But then you don't actually realize it. And they ended up cutting that kind of thing. But they still left in the parts where at some point Hook actually steals that snow globe. And you don't realize the significance of why he grabs that snow globe. But plenty of people tweeted it. I think we even said something about what's up with the snow globe and then just ended up having to dismiss it. I loved this commentary. First of all, I love Colin O'Donoghue's accent. But at one point they asked him about how he played darker his role darker and he's like oh i just add more eyeliner <laughs> like it was just great and he he mentioned how he loved playing both sides of hook in this episode because he was good and dark at the same time and along that same line they ask something about how do you kind of keep this a secret from people and he said i just put on more eyeliner to dazzle people so they don't ask the question <laughs> it's all about the guy liner but I loved some of the things that we learned about it. So there's the scene with the squid ink. If you guys remember, um, he breaks in and he gets the squid ink, which is taped to the back of the picture frame. Mm-hmm. And they supposedly wrote this whole scene. They forgot that Hook only has one hand. <laughs> so he's like, how, I- <laughs> like, he had to put it in his head. Like, how do I do this? Because I have to deflect this, grab this, throw this. Like, and he's only got one hand. How do you forget that Captain Hook has one hand? Well, no, like you're writing it's the, his the, most defining attribute. <laughs> right, but they're writing the scene and it's like they he takes a picture frame off the wall and then he sees it taped to the back which is across like leaning against the frame's leaning against a couch or something like that. And then he has to grab something and grab the squid ink and throw it and he's got to like turn his whole body and do all like contortion work to get to it because they forgot like he can't just grab it with his left hand thus the little thumb popping off and trying yeah. to do that and his amazing speed at doing all of that which he was able to do because he's a dark one let's let's just yes. pretend that but he didn't really know that at that point did he the whole thing about hooks being the dark one they mentioned in this that they did plan that from the beginning of the season so it's nice to know that was always planned but in our discussions of the episodes, we did reveal later on, though, that that whole scene with the voicemail left from Merlin does actually have Hook in the background when Merlin says the Dark One is here. But we never caught that. However, no. it was filmed that way because they knew it would be Hook. And that was always in the plan. And they confirmed that in their commentary. Colin said he was shocked that us, the audience, didn't realize he was dark until that time. <laughs> But one of the other funny comments from this commentary was that this is a show where you can play multiple death scenes and then still be alive. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not, that's not the exact word they said, but it's pretty much what it was. It was like, this character can die like four times over and, oh, he's still a main character, not to worry. Yeah, it, you know, they would have to worry if dead is dead. But uh, since dead isn't really dead, I guess they don't have to worry about that. Ouch. but overall i thought it was a really good commentary i'm not a huge fan of them because a lot of times i've been in ones where they just go off on tangents and talk about things that were like oh do you remember having pizza that day and that kind of stuff but this one actually stuck with the episode and what was actually going on yeah 
One of the things that stood out to me, and I'll kind of bring up this idea again in our commentary about the next episode, uh, next episode's commentary, so it's that meta, but they mentioned the onion rings, how when Emma brought onion rings to Zelina, that was not planned to be part of speeding up Zelina's pregnancy. So this is where Jeremy would say this thing about, oh, it was an unsupervised episode or something like that. Someone was unsupervised. But it was it kind of ended up being an accidental convenience for them to use for the idea of how Emma sped up the pregnancy. They So this is the way it ended up working out. They had Emma give the onion rings to Zelina before they had figured out that they wanted Emma to speed up Zelina's pregnancy. But then they looked back and they could see, oh, she gave her onion rings. Let's pull that in and then make it seem like we were much smarter and we had this planned all along. <laughs> and that's kind of why they threw in that line that Zelina said is when the savior gives you onion rings, don't accept them. That was yeah. to help make that connection for us. That was really kind of an accident, but they yeah. worked it out together nicely. I, you, we find out that that happens a lot. Yeah. And speaking of birth. By the way, you recently gave birth, Hunter. I did. And your little one is a few months old now. Yeah, he's three months old. Looking really cute. We got to see a little bit of him before the podcast in our pre-show. And congratulations again. Ah, Thank you. And uh, Jenny will be giving birth at some point during a hiatus, thankfully. We timed it that way. Yeah. We, you we, timed we, it that way. <laughs> Just I like I timed her, mine for the season finale. Yeah. We cannot have the baby in the middle of the Once Upon a Time season. So we <laughs> do whatever you need to do. <laughs> but uh, we've got exciting things coming in our family. And I know you've already got exciting things going on in your family. Yeah. Moving on to. The third and final episode that has commentary on the disc. And the first thing that was disappointing about this is how they did the commentary for this episode. It's the finale episode. Only you and Untold Story are combined together on the disc as a single episode. But they did commentary for only, only you. Only that first hour of it. And I... I would have much rather have heard commentary on the second hour, personally. Yeah, if I had to choose, I probably would have chosen the second hour. It was really strange because um, the two writers who commented for Only You, David H. Goodman and Andrew Chambliss, they actually kind of talk for a few minutes into an untold story, but they're just telling you that there's no more commentary, so enjoy the episode. And I was like, but if you just kept going, (laughs) it would be fine. Yeah. No one would notice. Right. Just just keep talking. I'm sure you guys have things to say about the season finale. Nonetheless, it was really good commentary and some really good things that they pulled out. David H. Goodman and Andrew Chambliss, the writers, and they said that this was their first time that they were being credited as writing an episode together. And Jacqueline, this was uh, the episode that you chose to watch the commentary. And what were some of the things that stood out to you? Yeah. um, Well, actually, they ended up going up for a bit of filming and they joked that they had squeezed into the back of Granny's kitchen to watch the opening scene, which is Robin's wake. And, And it's not comfortable in that kitchen at all, apparently. It's very tight. They did mention that they ended up cutting quite a few scenes 
in the opening and rearranging a lot of the scenes. So the episode opens with Robin's wake, but it was originally supposed to open with Rumpel in the clock tower doing his thing with the Olympian crystal and then going to Emma and Hook walking down Main Street. But they decided to go with Regina because so much of the finale is inside her head and it's really her episode. So they wanted to be with Regina from the start. Yeah. And they said that this episode, Only You, was 15 minutes over time. And so they had to cut a lot and some really good stuff. We'll talk about some of the deleted scenes later that we got to see, but certainly good stuff they had to cut out from this. And that happens when you're limited to really about 43 minutes that an hour-long TV show gets. Yeah, and along with that, they also talked quite a bit about how the production and producing the show dictates the story. So, for instance, there's a scene in the clock tower with everyone right after Rumpel sets off the Olympian crystal. And when they wrote the episode, it was originally supposed to be in the woods, but the producers came and asked to move it to the clock tower because it's an indoor stage set and they wouldn't have to have the actors outside in Steveston at night in the woods, which I guess is cheaper to be inside. And the other scene was the in the bug. It was supposed to be them outside rummaging through the car, and it was raining that day, so they had to film it inside the car. Yep. And so sometimes that sort of happens with the producers and the writers. The other thing was... We spent a lot of time in New York City for those two episodes, and the New York City streets, of course, are actually Vancouver, which is something we already knew, but um, it's a very controlled environment with people on walkies telling the taxis when they can drive, telling the extras when they're allowed to walk, so it's not just them kind of aimlessly going whenever they feel like it. When they were talking about the door that Zelina made that Mm -hmm. took everyone back to the Enchanted Forest, they hinted at something. I think they were just kind of throwing out thoughts, but it did open a door (laughs) to an idea of something that could happen. They said that uh, people were walking through, maybe people stayed behind, maybe some people snuck through the other direction, came through the door into Storybrooke and snuck in when everyone else was going out. That's an interesting idea for season six. Well, they left it open so they could write whatever they want. Yeah. (laughs) They actually specifically mentioned Guinevere as staying. They said, oh, who knows, maybe Guinevere stayed behind, which is interesting because the day that they were filming this, we had pictures of a body double dressed in Guinevere's clothing by the door, like ready to go through. So that way you could say Guinevere went through the door, even though we couldn't get the actress back. But we never actually saw her in the final airing of the episode. So I was like, oh, so maybe Guinevere did stay behind. So they also talked a lot about what they wanted the finale to feel like. They wanted it to be just as big and epic as the season three and season four finale, but they didn't want to revisit the same concepts of alternate realities. So they decided to make it a character-focused episode devoted to Regina and Emma, which is why we spent so much time, especially in Only You, with those two characters. And they had a lot to say about the Regina and Emma scene in Neil's apartment, which I thought was really interesting. Um, They were originally going to actually cut it down in editing, but because Lana Perea really nailed the entire thing and she was just so good, they decided to keep it all. 
Yeah, and there was another scene in there with Emma and Violet, one of the deleted scenes we'll talk about, and that's one that they had to cut completely in order to make more space for this because they felt this was so much more important. Yeah, and they actually kind of just let Lana do her thing. The director, Romeo Tyrone, let Lana decide how she wanted to block the scene so that she wouldn't be constantly focusing on hitting her mark. She could just... Do what came naturally. And then Jennifer Morrison actually improvised some of Emma's reactions and things like handing the letter from Robin Hood that they found in Neil's apartment back to Regina. That was all Jennifer Morrison. She decided that that is something Emma would do. And then that scene actually was supposed to end with Mr. Gold listening outside and then coming in and apparently locking them up in chains. Which I thought was, okay, <laughs> which I thought was really weird, but they decided to just end it with gold listening outside, which I think works a lot better. Yeah, it's more menacing that way, and it, as they mentioned in the commentary, it raises more questions in your mind, wondering what's going to go on from here. It strains you along a bit more with the story, right? They also teased a few objects that were inserted into this episode that might come back up again. You guys mentioned the snow globe that was acting as a dark one detector. Mm -hmm. But Henry also talked about a snow globe that has an entire town trapped inside. And apparently Eddie and Adam got really, really excited about this idea when the writers talked about it in the room. And so we might come back to that someday. Yes. And a feather. The feather. Yeah. So... Roland gives Zelina a feather from one of Robin's arrows that he su- she's supposed to give to Regina, and it's meant as an emotional moment, but the writers did say that it will also maybe appear in season six, yeah. and it might have some sort of magical significance. <clears throat> now, the only magical feather I know about is the one that helps Dumbo fly. <laughs> yes. Yep. That, and Dumbo is one of those classic Disney ones, and Jenny and I were talking about this recently, and we said, you know, they've done... Almost all the classic original Disney movie characters and villains and heroes. But what about Dumbo? (laughs) (laughs) Gonna make an elephant fly. No, this part of the commentary is what was one of those moments where it makes you laugh, but also (laughs) kind of makes you groan and makes you worried because they said, and I quote, Down the road, we can always pay that off in some kind of really cool way that, even at the time, we may not know. But after we do it, we can say we planned it the whole time and look really smart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that line, and then I go back to them saying in the commentary for the episode Birth that Hook was planned as a dark one all along. And I'm like, was he really, though? Was he, guys? Well, from the beginning of that season. No, no, I know, but I still kind of question that because, I mean, we were all so flabbergasted and, like, there were no hints. So, I don't know. It's one of those things that I kind of go, I don't know if you guys really planned it. It's the same thing that Aaron and I talked about with the commentary on Dark Swan, how they said they had planned for Emma to become a dark one and approached her with that idea somewhere in the middle of season four. And they had that idea. They said for a while... I wonder if they kind of got that idea from us or some of the other Once Upon a Time podcasters who I think from season one, we were, yeah, from season one, we were theorizing that Emma would become a dark one because I remember back then when Emma agreed to owe Mr. Gold a favor 
back then we thought, what if that favor is that she's going to kill him or she's going to take the dark one power from him and become the dark one? I kind of wonder if the writers got the idea of her becoming the dark one from us. I also think it's really interesting that sometimes the writers have ideas that they do hold on to for many, many years until they finally get to use it. And Andrew Chambliss has really wanted to do what he called the blood bead shot for about seven years, ever since he was working on the Vampire Diaries. So he finally got to have that shot when Regina pokes Emma to find Henry with um, a drop of her blood. Yeah. And then they got to use it again. Yes, and the other um, commentator, David H. Goodman, joked that if it was up to Andrew Chambliss, they would have had it like seven times. They would have had like an entire episode (laughs) of nothing but that blood bead. They did talk about the casting of Hank Harris and Sam Witwer, who played Jekyll and Hyde, um, because they were cast very, very quickly. They had such great auditions, and Adam and Eddie had previously worked with Harris as well. And then that led into a bit of a discussion on how hard it is to play a villain on Once Upon a Time because you do have to be larger than life, but you have to bring something kind of human to your performance so that way we do feel sympathy for you and we just don't hate you outright, mm. which I think is true. And they, they talked about how Lana and Bobby have been doing it for five years. And so you kind of look to them as the models of really how to play a villain on this show. Yeah, and the way that they've developed villains on this show have been really cool. And to see how sometimes villainry starts with one wrong decision or a wrong motive for something good, and then it just takes you down this path of darkness. As they say, evil isn't born, it's made. Right, and speaking of making evil, I suppose— They did talk about the reveal of Jekyll and Hyde when the audience finally figures out who these two guys are. The writers really like to ramp up to it instead of flat out telling the audience. They think it's more fun that way. But they do put in lots of hints to get the audience thinking about who these guys could be. So there was a lot of steampunk. There was a lot of science-y kind of things. And the assistant in the episode is named after the butler from the actual novel i just liked how they said they tried for us to like they threw these easter eggs in for us to figure out who these guys were but we already knew (laughs) yeah we already knew sorry daniel we knew about those for a while well and some of those who have been spoiler free in the chat room while we were watching the show when certain people appeared, they said, I think that could be Jekyll and Hyde, or, or they, they did throw out certain ideas. And when someone said the name Poole, they said, wait a minute, that's uh, Dr. Jekyll's butler from the book. And they did figure it out. Those who are connected really well with literature did figure it out very quickly, whereas other people like me took me a little bit longer. It actually took us a while, too, though, because we had two very bizarre casting calls. And every week, Hunter and I were going, well, it could be these two. Oh, well, maybe now it's these guys. And it actually took us a while to really settle on uh, Jekyll and Hyde. So don't don't feel too bad. Uh, and then they did also talk about the land of untold stories, which is where Jekyll and Hyde are living. And they called it Disneyland. Which I thought was adorable because you have all these multiple lands within different, like within the same realm. So, you know, you have Adventureland and I don't know, the Magical Kingdom. Frontierland. Frontierland, yeah. And in the land of untold stories, it's a lot of different little pockets of places within one big island, basically. 
Yeah, and I can see all kinds of cool things that they can do for the upcoming season. And we've talked about this before, but I, I feel like it'll be a very much a, a science literature kind of season where we're getting Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And we saw that page from one of the other storybooks that was uh, Captain Nemo and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it makes me think that maybe they'll bring back David Anders for some Frankenstein stuff because he fits in perfectly with that universe. And we've had that connection to the, the science fiction literature ever since season two, when Henry hinted that there are other stories that aren't in his book and characters inside of Storybook that were from elsewhere. And and they even talked about those pages of the book and the idea of having other books. And when they pitched that to Kitsis and Horowitz, because that's an idea that Chambliss and Goodman had together. And when they shared that with Kitsis and Horowitz, Adam and Eddie loved the idea and and just kind of ran with it and said, oh, yeah, and we could see this on the page and this and there will be these kinds of things. Yeah, it'll be fun to see some very different stories in season six because we've been doing Disney predominantly for quite a while now. And then they also talked about Rumpel and his continuous, you know, love versus power theme that's been going on with him for a couple seasons now. And they talked about when Rumpel has to choose between power and the person he loves, they refer to it as Eddie bait. Because apparently <laughs> Eddie Kitsis gets really into this and he loves setting Rumpel up to have to make those choices. And they did say that in their opinion, Rumpel always chooses power. And in the scene where he is, has to choose really quickly between the crystal and the bell in a box he does actually go for the crystal in their mind. And then he kind of changes his mind really quickly and goes back to bell, but it's too late. And they mentioned the music there that plays that violin music that comes in. I love that song. I agree with them. I love that music. Yeah. It's a great, uh, Mark Isham does a great job with each character having their own theme. And that's, I kind of see that as, I don't know if it's necessarily like the steampunk world theme or if that's the Jekyll and Hyde theme. But whatever the case, that violin feel, it it feels very science fiction, like classic retro science fiction mm-hmm. or steampunk science fiction light and, and really fits the show, fits the characters. And I think that we could be in for some really fun music in season six as well. I agree. I can't wait to see who they bring in. Yeah. And by the way, Matthew Paul pointed out that on Mark Isham's website, you can listen to the Jekyll and Hyde suite from the finale. So you can enjoy those strings over and over and over to your delight. We'll have that link in the show notes for this episode at oncepodcast.com slash 255. So those are the only three episodes that have audio commentary with them. And I was hoping for Easter eggs. You remember back on season one, there were those hidden bonuses. They haven't done that since season one. And I was hoping for a hidden episode commentary on the discs. But the way that I check the discs is extremely thorough. And none of the other episodes have commentary on them, which is really unfortunate. But the commentary we got was good commentary. Like both of you said, it was very on topic and good, engaging conversation. Yeah. If we had to get shorter or less commentary, I'm glad it was at least good. I really like hearing from the writers, especially 
non Adam and Eddie writers and nothing against those two. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we hear from them so often that it's nice to hear from David or Andrew or, you know, Jane. It's always nice to hear from those guys. I like the combination of writers and one of the actors because then you get to hear what's going on in the writer's mind as well as what's going on in the actor's mind as they're portraying that character or some of the funny behind the scenes things that happen or what they were thinking about it or their own shock or how they had to implement ideas but keep them secret still. Moving on to the deleted scenes, we had 18 deleted scenes on the Blu-ray version, and that's a few more, a couple more deleted scenes than the DVD version has. I felt like the deleted scenes here were more produced this season than they were in previous seasons. And that tells me either one of two things. One is that these were cut much later in the production, and that's certainly the case with a couple of these. It's definitely, there's no way that uh, it could be otherwise. But the other thing that I wondered is, did they produce these scenes a little bit more for our benefit watching the deleted scenes? I think they did. I mean, you could see there's a couple with the special effects where it says this special effect is to be added or this one or it was just really bad CGI on the, blue, <laughs> on the green screens. Yeah, um, there, were, there were some really bad ones. Really bad. Like they didn't produce anything. They just threw a background in. But I think there were some that was actually in the episode and they had to cut it. So those are the fully edited ones. But then I think they did it for us because everyone's expecting higher quality things nowadays. Yeah. And what gives away that it's higher quality is the audio, especially. You can hear everyone well. And many of them still have music in the background, too. So I don't know if that music was originally planned or they added it in. But certainly they did what we call sweeten the audio so that it sounded more production level as opposed to in the past, you know, you hear some of the stage set or you hear the directors giving instructions or something like that. Here, it was much nicer and, and felt more canon, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. You know, for the past few years, it's always been these are canon. And even two days before... I think we recorded this. Adam actually answered the question and said that if it gets onto the DVD, they consider it canon. And then less than 24 hours later, he tweets out that, nope, they're not canon. We've changed our minds, Mm. which kind of a bummer because I really like a lot of the deleted scenes. There are some scenes that, you know, I really wish they could keep in the episode because they do such a nice job of letting the character develop or answering some plot questions, things that are inconsistent. So it's a bummer to me. So the only things they are now considering canon are the actual show that airs live when you see it on Sunday nights. And then they're still considering the books that have been written canon. Now, there is one deleted scene I'm very glad is not canon, and we'll get to that in a moment. But to tell you what episodes have some deleted scenes here, we see deleted scenes from the following episodes. Souls of the Departed, Last Rites, Devil's Due, Siege Perilous, Broken Heart, Swan Song, Nimue, Only You, Labor of Love, The Price, Dreamcatcher, Firebird, and Sisters. So of these deleted scenes... Some of our thoughts on them, there's this one uh, that they labeled another option, and it's from Souls of the Departed. It shows the struggle for Regina, Robin, and Henry 
after Cora's ultimatum, which was you leave or else Henry's going to pay for this. Henry Sr. is going to pay for this. It was a great conversation, I think, between Regina and Henry about Henry Sr. and why Henry was named Henry. Yeah. It also helped explain why Regina stayed. I mean, you kind of get why she stayed in the actual final version of the episode, but this goes into more detail, and it's this really beautiful scene between Regina and Henry Jr. that then is kind of mirrored with Henry Sr. and Regina later, right before he crosses over into the better place. It's one of those scenes that you're like, oh, why couldn't you keep this? And, you know, you'll probably feel that about a lot of the scenes because I found myself writing a lot in my notes. Heart to heart, heart to heart, heart to heart. There's a lot of heart to heart scenes yep. that were deleted for the sake of time, but they're good scenes. I thought it was cute watching the Robin, Regina, and Henry walk away as like a family all holding hands. Mm. Like the way they panned out and they're walking towards the boat. And then they stop and they're like, no, we can't go. But I thought it was so sweet to see them as like a little family. Because we know what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then he died episodes later. (laughs) And he's very dead. Extremely dead. He's extremely dead. Not just a little. One final little thing about this deleted scene for me. Um, Rumple Snark. I always have to point out Rumple Snark. Um, he gave this fantastic line. Apparently, I made a deal to find a pirate. And I was just like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Little imp. I love you. <laughs> Another scene I wanted to talk about was this one they called Blocked Magic. And it's Emma and Regina inside of Mary Margaret's underworld apartment. And it's when Regina is struggling with her magic. And they have Guess what? A heart-to-heart conversation about magic and Regina's expressing some guilt over all the murders that she's committed. And uh, at the same time, though, Emma helps try to bring her some encouragement, talking about how she saw Neil on the way down and reminds her of Daniel and that conversation that then is kind of the, the springboard for Regina to then go find out, is Daniel down here? I loved this deleted scene. I wish they had kept it. How many of those did you say that about? Quite a few. (laughs) Um, I'm really bummed that they cut so many of these because so many of them are these really fantastic character moments. And sometimes the episodes are just so plot, plot, plot that we don't get these character moments and I miss them. And that's why it's plot, 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 because they had to cut all these out for time. Yep. Yeah, I know Jeremy is saying in the chat room right now, he said, I would love to see them cut plot twists and make the journey through the remaining plot points more interesting with more character depth and development. And others are agreeing with Jeremy, too, in the chat room. Yeah, and this is one of them. You know, Regina and Emma have come so far since the series began. And, you know, this heart to heart that they're having kind of mirrors the one that they're going to end up having at the very end of the season Once Robins died and they are trying to find Henry, you know, you can never have too many Regina and Emma heart to hearts as far as I'm concerned, because the two actresses just play so well off each other. And they always end up talking about things that really get to the heart of the show or get to the heart of the characters. And it would be nice to see this stuff live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to see these put into the episodes. Like, if you could watch a full episode of The Devil's Do mm-hmm. with with these scenes cut in where they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's like the director's cut. 
cut. The director's cut, yeah. Extended version. From the episode Siege Perilous was a scene called Eating Feelings, where it shows <laughs> Snow White and Guinevere serving soup to all of the Camelotians, Camelodians, <laughs> that are there in Storybrooke. And it's another good guess what? Heart to heart, this time between mm-hmm. Snow and Guinevere. And it made me realize, wow, Guinevere really hasn't had all that many good lines or good dialogue in the season. There was that really good scene that was very painful too. You know, the whole, come dance with your wife. That that was a beautiful scene with her, but beautifully painful too. Here, it's a really good heart to heart between these two women talking about uh, what they think Emma has done and how Guinevere does not hold Snow responsible and how Guinevere is concerned and compassionate about this great scene, another great heart-to-heart that probably had to be cut for time, but one of those really long good scenes too. I just, watching it, it was just like, wow, it looks like they're at the soup kitchen. Like, I felt so bad for all right. the people from Camelot. They're like, like they're getting the slop poured into the dishes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's like a soup kitchen. Can't you feed them at Granny's or something? But their queen is serving them. So that kind of makes it an upper class soup kitchen. <laughs> upper class soup kitchen. <laughs> From the episode Swan Song was a deleted scene called Enchantment. And this is the one that I feel like if they kept this in, oh boy, we would have hated this scene. And this is very, very uncanon because not only does it squeeze things in and also further amplify the fact that they squeezed in Hooks having to go on that errand and go kill his father, uh, which was already quite uncannon. I went back and watched episode 209, Queen of Hearts, and I could see how from when Regina found Hook trying to get information out of Bell and then was about to kill Bell, and then Regina enchants Hook's Hook and then sends Hook through the hat to find the Queen of Hearts, Cora, to kill her, pull her heart out, all of that stuff. Back in the episode Queen of Hearts, that all happens sequentially right then. In the episode Swan Song, that does not happen sequentially because Hook is sent on this errand to prove his loyalty and willingness to kill someone. A a whole thing that I think even in our commentary back then, just I think we said felt unnecessary. But this deleted scene was really like a redo of that scene. So it was retroactive continuity. They were redoing a scene because back in 209, Queen of Hearts, we saw Regina enchant the hook for Hook. And we saw her tell Hook, this will allow you to take one person's heart, but only one. In this scene, Enchantment from Swanson, that was, I'm very thankful, deleted from the episode, we see regina enchant the hook but this time actually she drops potion on it whereas back in 209 she just enchants it with her magic and i really don't like it when they go back and redo a scene like that in order to try and squeeze things in and try and fit other stuff into the timeline when it it really can't yeah you know watching this scene i kept questioning why did you even write this scene like, why in the some phase of editing did one of the writers not go, hey, this kind of massively screws up this ep- episode that we did, you know, three seasons ago? Because they didn't hire you. Right. Which, I mean, they really <laughs> got to do at this point. Hire the nerd. 
Yeah. Isn't that the hashtag? Yeah. <laughs> In the episode, um, Swan Song, you know, like Regina and Hook meet in a field and she's wearing a completely different dress than the one when um, she catches him trying to kill Belle and then they have this conversation. And then she's actually wearing that same dress in this deleted scene, that blue one that we know from Queen of Hearts. And I'm like, so how exactly does this work on a timeline at all? Because now everything from Queen of Hearts is different. So if there's one good thing coming out of the whole deleted scenes are no longer canon it's this yeah but i mean that that's it really for me from the episode nimoe we got some fun comedy that was unfortunately cut in a scene called fork in the past and merlin and nimoe are walking on the way and they decide to stop by her village so the the visit to her village was not uh, a, an original plan it was just, hey, you know, this is near my village. Let's go ahead and cut through there. And that's when they discovered that the village had been destroyed. But Merlin was talking about the sword and he, he had visions. This is before the sword was created. Remember, this was only the, the Dark One power was from that chalice. And he said uh, he had visions of the future of a legendary sword that will inspire books and movies. And then she's like, what is this movies you're talking about? Like, you have to explain this to me. So he could see that far into the future, into another realm. Although, yeah, that's still, that's hundreds of years, 500 years before our time. So it's still before movies were even a thought. Right. Even if you ignore the fact that it's across realms. Yes. It kind of reminded me of that scene in episode 301 between Neil and Mulan, where he Neil tells Mulan, oh, I really liked your movie. And she's just like, what's a movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From the episode Only You was this beautiful scene called Loaded, in which Henry and Violet are in Neil's apartment and they're looking for the clues that would eventually lead them to the library. So that helps fill in that piece where I remember our discussing how did Henry figure this out that they needed to go to the library and how did he find these notes? It was from this thing that they were searching uh, Neil's apartment. But it was this, this really beautiful scene between Henry and Violet. Yeah, they found Neil's original copy of Only You the one he probably played for Emma. And that's when I, you know, had to walk away from my computer screen for a while. <laughs> there was a little glitch, I think, in this yeah. episode or in this deleted scene. I kept playing it over and over again to make sure I heard it correctly. And maybe this is part of why they were inspired to delete it. But I think Violet accidentally called Henry Harry. Harry. Unless she was kind Harry of saying Potter. hurry. But it just didn't quite fit maybe that was a little well, if they kept it and they could have fixed that in editing they yeah. they must have her saying um henry at some point so they can just clip out the one and put it on top of the other and the notes by the way that led to neil's research and um put some of that together those were inside of one of those records yeah it was the velvet underground i think there was a cute scene from Devil's Do called Reconnecting. Hunter, what did you think of this scene? Oh, I thought it was so sweet. You got to watch Emma. She just reattaches the hook and make him back the way she, like the man that she fell in love with. Like, oh, there you are. Like, you're all beaten up and cut up and 
you look like death warmed over type thing. And here's your hook. Oh, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it it's a very special thing because it helps us kind of understand a little bit of why maybe Zeus didn't give Hook his hand back, as I know you guys talked about from your Comic-Con discussion. That Hook is really part of what makes Hook Hook. And people who are madly in love with each other can appreciate those kinds of things. It's the flaws that you love about each other. And I mean, not love about each other, but it's those flaws that make that person special and different and are the things that make them them, kind of. So Hook's hook is very iconic to him and even to their relationship. And the scene being called reconnecting is kind of a, a double meaning with its Emma and Hook reconnecting, because this is after she's rescuing him, as well as she reconnects the hook into his arm. From the episode of Broken Heart is this scene called Safe and Cloud. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> that interesting. What what do you think of this, Jacqueline? I thought this scene was random. And it's another one of those scenes that I'm like, yeah, that's okay that you can cut. Lancelot is in the woods and he sees the dark curse. And he just like casually strolls away. <laughs> like he was he oh, was it's set, no big deal. Right. Like, oh, my entire kingdom's being engulfed in a, you know, black doom and despair. But okay, I'm just gonna walk away. I'm like, what? Well, he was on a mission to go find his mother, the lady of the lake. Right. To try and so get her where help. is she? Why did he come back without her? And then again, why is he not freaking out as a knight who's in love with Guinevere <laughs> as this black cloud is like literally engulfing the entirety of her kingdom? He's just saying, Oh, my turn. To go to Forgotten Character Island. <laughs> right. He, after this scene, he gets in a boat and he paddles out to Forgotten Character Island where he still is, I'm sure. There's a scene called Savior Remains from the episode The Price. And it shows Regina looking inside of the sheriff's office looking for Emma. This is after Emma has just recently disappeared. This is the second episode of the season, I believe. And... Uh, So they're still looking for Emma, and her red jacket is there on the sheriff's chair. Yeah, it was kind of ominous. Like, well, where is she? Why doesn't she have her jacket with her? A little bit iconic, too, because of what that red jacket represents and how the jacket is left behind there. And uh, that she is no longer that person who wears the red jacket because she's now the dark one. But she's also not even in that realm, even though they're looking all around for her. That's when she was actually in Enchanted Forest as the dark one, struggling with all of that and eventually finding Merida and that stuff. This is one of those half-edited produced scenes. They show you Storybrooke without the tower, mm-hmm. on top the, oh, without yeah. the clock tower. And so it's like, insert clock tower here, like... But it, you, it still sounded right. So it was one of those overproduced, not overproduced, but produced for TV, but never quite finished. Yeah. Yeah. Produced enough for us to be able to enjoy it. Yes. From the episode Dreamcatcher, yeah. they made a scene. <laughs> they call it Stunner Stew, but we're calling it the Jeremy Laughlin scene because they made this one for Jeremy Laughlin. We are absolutely positive of that. Without a doubt, this is Jeremy's scene. I mean, this is like five years 
worth of them listening to the podcast and finally going, we need to make a scene for this guy. This is it. So you've probably guessed by now what that scene is. Squid Ink. What else? This is the weirdest scene I've ever seen. Like, (laughs) it's so weird. The Apprentice brings this little baby squid in to Merlin. It's like this this pink squid with like big black eyes just like staring at you. Yeah, it it really looks like um, raw meat. There's this really cool – if you're ever in the Cincinnati area – Uh, Go to this international grocery store. There are two of them in the greater Cincinnati area. Jenny and I love going to this place as even a date. Uh, It's an international market. It's called Jungle Gems. Really big place. They have all kinds of crazy things from all across the world. Well, if you go to their meat section, you can find duck head all packaged together just like you find chicken breast and meat cuts and other things like that. Duck head, but it's really pink and packaged together and dry looking and it looks like raw meat ready to be cooked. That's how this squid looked. Yes. And he just like unrolls it from this cloth and is like, here, master, I found it. (laughs) And if this is how you make squid ink, I'm sorry, it is too easy for what kind of thing it does. Unless the squid is very hard to come by in the enchanted forest. And it's like there's like two of them in the entire ocean. Okay, that makes more sense. But it was too easy to make that potion. And too easy to get the squid, especially for a child. Yes, he's the apprentice, the sorcerer's apprentice. But he was the one that went and got the squid and brought it back to Merlin. And remember back in season three and before then when we learned about squid ink and that kind of thing, we saw in season three in Neverland how big of an ordeal it was for Rumple to get the squid ink. And here a little kid can go get a baby squid well, apparently just <laughs> down at the creek. The squid <laughs> in Neverland was like ginormous. It was this huge, huge creature that rose from the depths and had all these legs and it was really creepy. And this is like <laughs> this tiny <laughs> little naked squid. I was like, really? And then to make squid ink, all you do literally is toss it into a pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the squid ink comes out. Now, yes. you know, one of the ways to possibly explain how this all works is this is Merlin we're talking about and his apprentice. Remember, the apprentice was able to make a door straight from the Enchanted Forest to New York City for the Snow Queen to walk through. And we've also seen uh, the apprentice's wand be able to make the door that took everyone back to the Enchanted Forest. So maybe Merlin easily made a door for the apprentice and he said, go through here. This is going to take you to a strange land called Neverland, but don't worry. No one lives there yet except this kind of shadow that's somewhere around there. But just go and find a baby squid, rip it off of its mother and bring it back. And I'm going to throw it into a pot of boiling water so that I can try to rescue or, or tether the woman I love to this dagger and, and try this thing. <laughs> so, yeah, this is Jeremy Laughlin's scene. But as, as ridiculous as the scene is, it makes more sense of one of the other strangest scenes we've seen before in Once Upon a Time. Remember when we saw Merlin calling the dark one and when merlin then dropped the dagger and was turned into the tree by the dark one 
and the dark one was just kind of wisping around and ghosting around and all of that. And then it froze. And it froze very awkwardly, like creepily, frozen, reaching out to him, perfectly still, like a mannequin frozen. You remember that whole awkward scene now? Now it makes sense because Nimue, who that dark one was, was supposed to have been frozen from this squid ink. That's why Nimue couldn't move until Merlin dropped the dagger. Then Nimue could move and grab the dagger. That's when Nimue then imprisoned Merlin inside the tree. I need to go watch that again. Yeah, I I did. (laughs) And and so it makes total sense now because of the squid ink scene. (laughs) And uh, if Jeremy Laughlin was dead right now, he would be rolling in his grave like this. But I'm sure what he's doing is he's digging a grave and rolling in it right now just so he can be rolling in a grave over the squid ink (laughs) scene. Because really... Yes, Squid Ink is the answer to why that scene was so awkward. (laughs) Moving on, one of the other scenes that stood out to us is a scene called Unappetizing from Firebird. When Hades is in the diner, apparently waiting for Zelina, and the blind witch is there, and she's the waitress there in the diner in the underworld. She wasn't acting very blind. She, like, walks up to his table without any problems. Exactly. That's, like, it took me, like, three seconds to realize, like, that's the blind witch. Like, she didn't act it. Yeah, but she kind of pretty much offers herself. Like, you know, why do you need Zelina when you have, you know, me? And Hades' response was, I may be a god, but even I don't like burnt offerings. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in Greek mythology, <laughs> which I haven't gotten to say in like four months. I mean, that's basically, yes, you have tons and tons of sacrifices where they actually do throw the meat of animals like onto the fire and the the scent and flavoring is supposed to draw the gods. So I got a little bit of a chuckle out of that. But it also kind of answers another one of those questions that I had when I was watching that episode, Firebird. So we see Hades appear in the street to Emma and the rest of the heroes and he's got this scroll and he's like – they have Zelina. And I remember going, but where did this scroll come from? How do you know any of this? And you see it. The scroll like magically appears on his dinner plate. I'm not so sure yeah. that it was magically appearing there as much as maybe it was just underneath the thing that then the blind witch took back into the kitchen. And that's yeah. when he saw it or it was on the other side of it. That she grabbed without fumbling around for. Right. <laughs> but at least it does answer that whole like, how did he realize that Pan and Rumple had Zelina? How did he have this random scroll that he's then waving around to Emma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. From the episode Sisters was a scene called Writing Rounds, and that's W-R-I-T-I-N-G, Rounds. And a nice little scene here with Henry kind of struggling over his power as the author and with the author's pen and the book. And a great conversation between Emma and Henry. They should have kept this one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those heart-to-heart character moments. So much of season 5B, one of the big complaints that I think we voiced a lot was the fact that Emma, she makes these kind of terrible decisions, these very emotional decisions, but then there's almost no reflection. She's not given any time to breathe and to really think and reflect on what she's doing. And this is one of those scenes where she does open up about killing Cruella back in season 4B. And 
you know, if I could have done it any other way to protect you, Henry, I would have. But I had to do what I had to do. And it's it's nice to see Emma kind of self-reflective when so much of 5B, I felt like she wasn't doing that. Mm-hmm. And she said something that was a very good quotation. She said this to Henry, never compromise your soul, not even from me. These are the deleted scenes that stood out the most to us. There are several others, though, that we didn't talk about. So definitely get the DVD or Blu-ray to check it out for yourself. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, but oncepodcast.com slash season five, that's where you can go. And that's an internationalized link. So it should take you to the proper amazon.com store for you. And it will take you to the Blu-rays by default, but you can uh, switch over to the DVD version if that's what you prefer. But get your own copy. Uh, send us a picture of you holding the DVD and what postcard that you got on it. You can tweet us at Once Podcast. The other thing we'd love to see you sending us a picture of is go to oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts, especially before August 21st, 2016. Order one of the t-shirts there that you find. You might search the store and find some other t-shirt that you like even better too, but we've tried to hand select the best looking and most enjoyable Once Upon a Time t-shirts over there at oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts. And send us a picture of you wearing your favorite t-shirt from that store. And that'll be a lot of fun. And we'd like to collect those as well. And remember when you purchase through that store, that does support us too. So it's a fun way for you to get something great as well as to support the podcast as well. Moving on to the other special features that are on the disc. We have a special called Once Celebrates 100. Once Upon a Time had its 100th episode inside of season five and episode 100 is really big for many tv shows they get syndication they get special notoriety all kinds of really good things happen when a tv show can make it to episode 100 they had a big party yeah they had a big viewing party nice celebration the president and vice president of abc were there celebrating and the new president of abc is a big fan of once upon a time and they had this really neat poster in the background during this party that showed uh, kind of a collage of the different iconic apples from Once Upon a Time. And we've seen that with the covers, what they've been doing for the disc covers for Once Upon a Time over the last few seasons where we've seen the apple in different ways. Like in season four, it was a frozen apple. In season five, it's a black apple on the front cover of the DVD and Blu-ray. I think that's an even more iconic image than what they've done in the past. And it might even be cool if they go back and update the older seasons to have that same iconic apple on the front, but different color style. But that was a really neat poster in the background. I want that poster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a cool poster. I kind of wish, like, I liked how they did the thing with all the cast interviews. I kind of wish they had a lot of the guest stars there. Mm. Yeah. Because they were part of what made the 100 episodes special. Yeah. And I had wished that this little featurette had just been longer. I was really surprised at how short it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was maybe only, what, two and a half minutes? Yeah. I mean, for your 100th episode, I kind of expected, especially since we didn't get commentary for the 100th, I expected that this little featurette would really, you know, show the fact that the show has reached 100 episodes and kind of a look back, a retrospective, if you will, of our show since 
100 is a really big deal. And it was very short. There were only a few cast members um, who actually spoke. And it was maybe like a line or two from each of them. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Morrison looked really pretty. She did. I guess because I was so used to seeing her as the dark one. Yeah. In our chat room, Matthew Paul, um, one of the other forum moderators, by the way, pointed out that John Lasseter from Pixar was also at the party. And that makes sense because of their bringing Merida into Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they said is, I think it was Zelina or Rebecca Mader who said about Once Upon a Time, this show could go on for 100 years. And I thought, no, please no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a podcast for 100 years about I mean, the same TV show. They'd all be dead. Yeah. I mean, even Jared Gilmore, who's the youngest on the show, I mean, he's almost, what, 17? Do you really want to see a 117-year-old Henry running around? <laughs> Once upon a time, being pushed the next around, generation. Being pushed around in a wheelchair all hunched over. Right. Back in my day when I became the author. But they did have a very pretty cake. Mm-hmm. I did like the cake. Whoever was the baker did a good job. I loved seeing the big storybook. Yeah, that was beautiful. Another feature they had is focusing on Merida in Storybrooke. That's the name of the feature. And it talks about Amy Manson, who plays the part of Merida. You get to see some behind the scenes with her becoming Merida. She talks about becoming Merida. One of the things that I thought was really cool with this is that they said that Merida's bow, arrows, and sword that she uses in the TV show are all modeled directly from Pixar's movie Brave. That's really cool. Yeah. Down to the details, the patterns mm-hmm. on each of them and such. Nice attention to detail there. Merida is one of my favorite characters. Like, I love Brave. So when they brought her onto the show, I was so excited. So I'm glad she got her own little featurette. And it's actually a long one. It was, what, eight minutes? Yeah, it was kind of a long one. I really like that they, when they were making the bow, arrow, and the sword and everything, they actually used some of the a 3D printer to help make some of those bits and bobs, some of the decorations on it, I guess, so they could be as authentic as possible to the movie Brave. Yeah. I think one of the big things that I learned from this is that her hair was a wig. I don't know why I thought it was her real hair with, like, extensions put in or something, but it's a legit wig. They do a really good job at hiding that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She had to get up really, really early in order to get that wig on. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning when she and uh, Megan Ori was there and kind of popped in as well. So it was really early when she and Megan rolled in. Yeah. I've done some production work, and I'm sorry, 5 is nice. That would be sleeping in for me. I've had like 3 and 4 a.m. calls. Speaking of Megan Ori, they had several little clips of Megan Ori, uh, who plays Ruby, and Jamie Chun, who plays Mulan, and Amy Manson. Merida together and doing some funny things together and some of their scenes that they shot together. And it looked like the three of them had a lot of fun and uh, they referred to them as kind of like Charlie's angels of (laughs) once upon a time. I hope we see them together again next season. I like the way Jamie Chung referred to Merida and Mulan as they're both strong women fighting societal norms Mm. because I thought that fit really well with those two. Yeah. Another feature is Tales from the Underworld. This is a dramatized thing. Uh, Tales from the Underworld, A Night with Cruella, and that's K-N-I-G-H-T. This was not quite what I expected it to be, but it was still fun. has a special guest 
in it, and it's only that special guest and Cruella. This was excellent. This alone is worth the price of a <laughs> of the Blu-rays, guys. This is amazing. And Hunter and I had actually seen the first maybe only minute, if that, at Comic-Con. And we had talked a little bit about it on our Comic-Con review episode we did previously. And I finally we finally got to see the whole thing. And I was like, this is easily the best thing they wrote for all of season five. It's amazing. And for those of you that didn't hear the spoilers, it's Spike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was also um, Brainiac from Smallville. That's where I know him from because I didn't watch uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's Did you watch Angel? Sad. Come no. on. He was on both. <laughs> he was also Sorry. in Torchwood for you British folks. Oh, I only watched, I think, the first season of Torchwood. But yeah, it's James Marsters. And the second he turns around... At Comic-Con, you kind of saw someone was shooting the audience. So you heard them all gasp when they they revealed that it was James Marsters. And it was actually written by Jane Espenson, who is the Buffy writer. Nice. It's very entertaining. Everything you know about Cruella and her great lines, it's all packed into this. It's only oh a few gosh. minutes long, but it's so much fun. And <laughs> just to watch over and over and laugh at. Uh, there is some interesting stuff to pull from this. Arthur is the ruler of the underworld, and he's been cleaning things up, and Cruella is all bummed about this. This is 50 years later. I know, and then threw that in at the end of this whole thing. I'm like, wow, major time hop here. Yeah. Yep. And that that means this is the farthest into the future we've ever seen, but we're only getting to see a view of the bar in the underworld two characters that's it but apparently arthur 50 years later is doing a good job with this and a lot of funny lines from this great job on their part yeah you're very soft can i skin you <laughs> yeah. it's like i'm the true hero right <laughs> now this night you need our dramatic readings how many more do you want from us we're very good at them this knight was one of the ones from the round table, and he apparently tried to usurp Arthur's throne, and Arthur killed him. And that's why he's here in the underworld. Yeah, that's Mordred uh, from Arthurian mythology, and they uh, they got some of it right. Um, usually in Arthurian mythology, he's actually Arthur's illegitimate son by Morgan Le Fay. And they have this really huge battle, the Battle of uh, Camlin, in which Mordred does die. Arthur kills him, but he fatally wounds Arthur. So it's not just a matter of um, usurping Arthur's throne. There's a lot of ties there. Sorry, I thought Mordred was a stepbrother. No, son. I mean, the legends sometimes differ, but like the most common one is that he's Arthur's son, either by Morgaze or Morgan Le Fay. And before we talk about the last thing that's special on the discs, which is the bloopers, I want to tell you about how you can get our bloopers from the podcast episode, and that is by becoming a supporter and a hero to the podcast to support the podcast on a regular basis. And for this episode, I'd like to thank our supporters, Lisa Slack, David Newland, Amy Cadillier, DJ Firewolf, and our other heroes on Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We could not do it without you during these summer months. 
even though we don't put out episodes as often, it still costs just about as much to host the podcast. And we have other expenses and other things that come up too, like buying the season pass from iTunes for the next season coming up, paying for the hosting for the website and other upgrades and things that go on behind the scenes to keep the podcast running, keep everything online. But we can do that with your support. So thank you very much. You are a hero to the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And all of our heroes get access to our bloopers that we post from some of our recordings. And we've got some hilarious bloopers sometimes and and we've got some great stuff to share with you. So if you'd like to become a hero too and get access to our bloopers and know that you're a hero to the podcast, then go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. Lastly, the bloopers. <laughs> The bloopers, I think, are are tied with Tales from the Underworld for being the most entertaining thing on the disc. They were a lot better this year than they have been uh, in the recent past. I think it was either season four or season three, although I think it was season four, where we all kind of said, oh, these aren't that funny. Um, but this year they were actually quite entertaining. Yeah. They were hilarious. I was cracking up the whole time. They make... It looks so much fun to record Once Upon a Time and the fun that the cast has with each other. I realize some of these cast members have been working together now for five years. So they are really close friends. In the case of Josh Dallas and Jennifer Goodwin, they're you know super close friends, now husband and wife <laughs> and mother and father to two kids now together. But a lot of fun that they have with each other. And to see their dynamic is is great. Yeah. I was kind of surprised at how often Colin messes up. There was a lot of Colin messing up, like right in a row. Several, several moments of just Colin continuously messing up. Mm. You know what it could be, though? Like, it, they could probably all mess up the exact same amount of times, but he's just more animated about when he messes up. Because some oh. people could be like, oh, wait, I got to do that again. But he is hilarious when he does things, when he messes up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm totally glad that I saw all that. It was funny. Yeah. So, like, they probably just put his in because he's more animated. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite one was Emily DeRaven with Belle. She's in Gold Shop, and she is super pregnant at this time. And we didn't, like, they did a really good job of hiding it. But she goes and turns, and, like, her belly runs into everything. I just thought it was hilarious. They also have a thing that looked like... It could have been a deleted scene, but I guess it was actually a blooper. But they're walking down the road, and David is there being the sheriff or one of the sheriffs of Storybrooke, and he pulls out his ticket book and writes a parking <laughs> ticket to stick among the many other parking tickets on Cruella's car that has the for sale sign on it. Yes. I like the one where it's Josh and Victoria Smurfett who plays Cruella, and they're in the sheriff station in the underworld. And, you know, it's supposed to be, it's either David or James because we know that, you know, David was pretending to be James at one point. And um, something something messes up and Cruella's like sliding off the desk and you just hear her yell, it's all going horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got to watch these scenes and watch them over and over and over because you'll appreciate the comedy, I think, more each time that you watch it. So to enjoy these bloopers, 
to enjoy the special uh, Tales from the Underworld, Merida and Storybrooke. One celebrates Underworld, these deleted scenes, the commentaries. Order your own copy of the DVD and Blu-ray set by going to oncepodcast.com slash season five. That link is also in the show notes for this episode at oncepodcast.com slash 255 and that's where you can get the links see a couple of the screenshots from some of these special things and share this episode out with your friends too and we would really appreciate it that's that's one of the best ways that you can help the podcast even if you can't afford to support the podcast financially to share the podcast with other people means a lot to us and one of the ways that you can help share it and help the podcast and help other people decide to listen to the podcast is by leaving a review for us in itunes and i've got a few reviewers to thank first is cantaloupe seven from the united states said i look forward to this podcast so many times the hosts are saying exactly what i'm thinking funny and entertaining Danielle G43 said, great podcast. They are friendly and informative, and I enjoy listening to it. And Mika Palmieri from Brazil said, a way to improve my experience with watching once. Gotta love this podcast. Great opinions every week with deep discussions and an amazing sense of humor throughout the whole thing. These guys have made my experience with Once Upon a Time bearable since the series plot has become weaker and weaker. Hope you can still do what you do best and help me and others put up with this show about hope. (laughs) The hope that it comes back to be a great show. If only the producers would listen to this podcast. There is hope, I'm hoping, from what they've said about this next season. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much for those kind reviews. We did also receive a negative review, uh, but we do appreciate, even though when it's negative, uh, that you took the time. To go and write something, to be honest, to share your honest opinions, we do also appreciate that. We really enjoy those five-star reviews and and those comments like those here. And if you're in one of those other 155 countries that has iTunes in it, don't worry. We have a tool that lets us see your reviews. So if you've been worried about writing a review and maybe we, we wouldn't see it because we're not in your country, don't worry. We do get to see it. So if you're in a different country definitely review us in iTunes. The link for that is on the website and in the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 255. We'd love to connect with you over this hiatus and to share some of our latest updates with you as things are breaking. So please follow us on Twitter at oncepodcast. And you can follow each of us individually on Twitter. I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at the Daniel J. Lewis. Yes, it's a new username now, so I'm no longer the ramen noodle. I'm now the Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Hunter Hathaway at Traveling Pixie. And I'm Jacqueline. You can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. Also connect with our fellow co-hosts, Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon, that's P-H-L-E-G-O-N, and Aaron on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. Make sure that you order your t-shirts before the price goes up again, but they may go on sale some other day, but get one now. Send us your picture. Go to oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts. That link and all of our other links are in the show notes for this episode. Please share it out, oncepodcast.com slash 255. We may talk to you again before the season starts, but if not, get ready for Once Upon a Time coming back on the last Sunday of September, September 25th. Until then... Have a happy ever after, and thanks for listening.
Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our supporters for being heroes to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be a hero too and get access to our bloopers and other fun stuff, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support.